Good morning. It's good to see all of you here again. This morning we're um, reading from Mark, and it's going to be in chapter 7. I'm reading from verse 24 to the end of the chapter. So Mark 7, verse 24 to the end of the chapter. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephepha, that is, be opened. I'm sure I mispronounced that word. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the man, he charged, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. That's the word of the Lord. Good morning. If I say God is good, tell no one, the psychology here is that you're going to say something to everybody. God is good. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, you are good, and we are not. We are sin-filled. We have failed to love you as we should. We have failed to love one another as you have called us to. We have dwelled in our little worlds and focused on little things instead of living in obedience to you and giving you reverence as you are due. Lord, as a community, we ask for your forgiveness. We ask for your restoration. We ask for your spirit because we are in desperate need. Father, we thank you that you are good and that you give us what we need. What we cannot do on our own, you have given us through Christ. And Lord, I pray that we would be a community that speaks more and more about Christ's goodness. We would be a community that more and more uh, loves one another because of Christ's goodness. 
knows each other, carries each other's burdens, walks with one another in child-rearing, marital struggle, disease, life and death situations. Lord, let it be for your glory that we do all things. Amen. Uh, we were away last weekend preaching in Edmonton. And it feels like a month. Uh, it is so strange not to worship with you. Uh, so we're very glad that we are back. There is a massive archaeological project in Israel at the place called Har Megiddo. Har means hill, so this is the hill or the Mount of Megiddo. This dig was started in 1903 by a bunch of Germans and has continued on and off ever since uh, with great international uh, participation. One day while walking on tour, we got to see this site, and they've uncovered the great gates, and you can see how thick the walls are surrounding this city on a hill. They've unearthed the temple, and it's incredible in its size. Stables, houses, uh, cobblestone paths all the way around Megiddo. And they have found a shaft that goes a hundred plus feet straight down into this mountain, and it is rock. It is not sand or clay. It goes 100 feet down, and then it goes 200 and some feet out. And that's how this city uh, would withstand siege. They had a waterway, a spring that nobody knew about, and so they, they were self-sustaining because they had water, and they had dug this hole, and you can walk down this spiral staircase and out. And it's amazing. While we were there, uh, one of the, the people in our group asked about the palm trees, because there's palm trees everywhere just thriving out of this rock. And our tour guide said, oh, well, these are not native species to this area, but 100 years ago, when the crews were excavating this city, they would eat dates and spit out the stones, and from these stones, these palm trees have grown. Now, further north, driving the upper part of Israel, there are similar palm trees lining the country roads, but they are only on the north side of every road. And it's striking, because everywhere that you drive, these palm trees line the north side of the roads. And again, someone in our group asked, and the tour guides said, yes, well, these are not native here either. They've been planted here over the past few decades because we're only a few miles away from Lebanon. And they keep shooting missiles at the local traffic that's driving by. These trees have been planted to provide enough visual obstruction uh, that they don't bother shooting missiles much anymore. And as we're trundling along in this little bus, I say, well, thanks, that's good to know. <laughs> I say this because this is the region of Tyre and Sidon. It's found in modern-day Lebanon. And this is the area that Jesus chooses to take his disciples next. 
It's a strange place for a retreat because this is the place that was and is a place of great contention and warfare for the Jews. Incidentally, Har Megiddo is where we get the word Harmageddon, the place where all the kings of the world will assemble to do battle against the Lord and his faithful one day. Throughout the Old Testament, Tyre and Sidon are depicted as some of Israel's most idolatrous foes. They're condemned for their pride and their greed and oppression of Israel. It's found throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Zechariah. Tyre and Sidon's trade partners were frightened by this judgment that the Lord put upon her, and her wickedness likens her to the great harlot Babylon. Historian Julius, sorry, Jewish historian Flavius Josephus calls the people of Tyre our bitterest enemies. And I say all this about missiles and biblical judgment and Josephus to try to express the depth of resentment found between the Tyrians and the Jews, which will give context to our story. This is the place where Jesus goes right after confronting the Pharisees and his own nation regarding their sin while teaching them where defilement truly comes from. He takes his disciples to a place of unspeakable defilement. Mark seven twenty four, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know yet he could not be hidden. Jesus' fame precedes him, and he cannot outrun it. These people have already sought him out in chapter 3, and now they find him once more. And again, he seeks for rest, but he's interrupted. At supper time uh, these days, we are reading an abridged version of the children's progress. And just this week, my wife commented about how often it seems that the pilgrims in this story are told to rest or are given places of rest along their journey. And we might similarly note how often Jesus leaves what he's doing to seek rest. And if Jesus thought it regularly, perhaps we should too. Not in sloth or idleness, but in rest. Rejuvenation, revitalization. Verse 25 and 6. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Tim Keller is noted as saying there are three types of people in this world. There are cowards... There are regular people, and there are heroes. But then there are parents. And parents are not really on this spectrum of cowardice or courage, because if your child is in jeopardy, you just simply do what it takes to save them. Hearing about Jesus, she hunts him down. Absolute resolve. And upon finding him, she fell at his feet and begged him to rid her daughter of the demon that bound her. And Mark places this story right here 
on purpose. In our last passage, we saw the scribes and the Pharisees come down from Jerusalem to lecture Jesus on what and who was clean and unclean. They leaned on old traditions to avoid defilement and to ensure separation and holiness. But Jesus doesn't even pay them any heed to their take on something so simple and useful as hand-washing. Instead, he crushes their man-made systems. He rebukes them and explains that what one touches or consumes doesn't make a person unclean. Instead, impurity issues outward from the heart. No external thing is as rotten and defiled as what beats within each of us. And only an external righteousness, Jesus shed blood, can thus cleanse an unclean heart. Of note here, demons too are unclean because of pride issuing from within. So here is Jesus' proof. He's walking the talk, and he goes to Tyre. But the contrast is clear here, because after meeting the jabs and pride of Israel's spiritual leaders, now Jesus is met by the humility and the desperation of this Gentile woman from an enemy state, from a pagan, unclean world. We expect Israel to love and desire their Savior and rival nations to make war with him. Instead, this story shows Jesus is unconcerned by human ideas of purity and righteousness and is willing to walk right into so-called unclean waters to turn upside down our notions of who we are and who he is. And this is what makes this story about you and I. This woman was likely a Greek or a Greek-speaking Canaanite, native to the region of Phoenicia. Her non-Jewish character and her non-Jewish place is stressed, which gains emphasis all the more when she falls at Jesus' feet and begs of him. And the tense here shows that she repeatedly begs of him. Again and again, she pleads until she's heard. Plainly, she shows honor to Jesus when the Pharisees did not and displays her need for Jesus when they would not do that either. Verse 27, And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And his answer is crazy. It's it's wrong. It's terrible. Jesus, come on, tell us how you really feel. To call someone a dog in the Near East was as big an insult as you could muster. Dogs were wild and dirty. Remember this unclean, clean language that we've talked about. They were four-legged vultures, scrounging meat off of dead things. Think scavengers, think jackals. In Matthew 7, 6, Jesus himself says, Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Even so, Jesus' response does not fit what we expect. It's not the soft and kind little loving Jesus that we know. 
that we think we know. And scholars have been trying to explain this away, this callous attitude of Jesus for centuries, saying he's speaking with a gentle tone and a twinkle in his eye. He's being humorous in a way that we just can't hear in the text. Or he's merely testing her to see if she's serious. Will she stick it out to get her miracle? Or some have said that he doesn't quite know his role yet. Should he add the Gentiles to his mission at this point? But I want to suggest that this offense just needs to stand. It's really not just me, but scholars, uh, many have said this too. The scandal should not be swept under the carpet. He plainly says to the woman, you are not of the children of God. Israel must hear my message first. The Gentiles will need to wait. But note that there is a promise here for the Gentile world. It's coming, just not yet. Jesus knows his mission just fine. But as always, he refuses to follow convention. He zigs when we expect him to zag. He often speaks in ways that shakes our comfort. Nowadays, you'd say he refuses to be politically correct. And this is because nothing short of salvation is on the line. He knows what he's doing when he talks this way. In John, John 2, he says to his mom, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. He doesn't, he doesn't give her the honor we would expect even. Another example, in Matthew 24, uh, Jesus says, For lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so it will be with the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And Jesus actually likens himself to a corpse. He uses this language to say, wake up, be ready. His return will be as obvious a thing as a dead body decomposing. And the contrast between his life-giving return and the image of something dead is meant to shock, to catch our attention, to focus our gaze. Now in verse 27 of Mark 7, there are some important nuances. The words children and dogs are written in the diminutive. In English, we would put the word little in front of both of them, little children, little dogs. One is meant to play off the other in Jesus' sentence. Effectively, he says the Savior must come first to the little children of Israel and then to the Gentile world. But also note then that there, just as there are little children at the table, Jesus talks of little dogs of the house, pets. These are loved animals that share in the life of the family. They're very different from the wild dogs of the streets or desert. Still, we get stuck on the word dogs, don't we? But we actually miss the word for which we are supposed to get stuck on. Our modern ears are keen to sense inequality, and we recoil. Stop everything. We, we see the contrast between people and dogs as an injustice. But look closer. The woman doesn't see it this way. 
She sees this riddle for what it is. It's a parable about timing, not inequalities. And it's timing that she jumps on to contest. Just as we are surprised by Jesus' cold demeanor, we are also very surprised by the woman's quick response. Verse 28, but she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She shoots back. She answers his hard words with a cleverness rarely seen. She takes his riddle and uses it to her own advantage. I may be a dog, but even dogs get what falls off the children's plate. I, have, I may have no business asking for your help, but here I am asking anyway, waiting for the children's scraps to fall. You can feed Israel a fine four-course meal, but here I am to take a crumb. And Jesus is impressed. Her brass response reveals an unwavering belief that Jesus can rescue her child. Willing to challenge Jesus on timing, she doesn't have to wait long, does she? Verse 29 and 30, And he said to her, For your statement... You may go on your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and find the, found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. She's like the men who dig through the roof to lower her friend to Jesus. She's like the woman who relentlessly pushes her way through the crowd to touch his garment. She's like the father who believed that not even death could stop Jesus from rescuing his little girl. She's like the widow who knew no shame and screamed out day after day in the court of the wicked judge for justice. She will not be put off. She will wait. She shows dogged determination to get help for her daughter. And for this, Jesus commends the woman. He commends her in a similar way as he does the centurion, from Matthew 8. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, I tell you the truth. With no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into outer darkness. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Her faith, her belief that Jesus can rescue her daughter is acknowledged and it's rewarded. But we ought to apply Jesus' words to the centurion in the, from this chapter. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob one day will eat with all the peoples of the world. There will be new members of their family gathered from every nation from the east and the west. While many old members of their family their own flesh and blood will be thrown out into outer darkness. And we see this comparison, the self-righteous Pharisee to the self-abasing Phoenician woman. Romans 1, 16 and 17 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, for it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. My friends, faith is a gift of God to trust Him. His faithfulness is displayed again and again in order to grow the faith of those that He calls. I love all the eating metaphors going on in Jesus' ministry, not just because I love food, but because there's great meaning. Abraham's children were provided the whole meal, weren't they? They were given the right heritage. They were given the prophets. They were given the laws of righteousness. And even the Christ came through their line. But only a remnant received that meal. Only a few had faith, like their father Abraham, to take and eat of the feast. First chapter of John says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. He came to his own people, and they did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, little children of God, who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but born of God. No one wants to be called a dog. Well, I know one little girl who thinks dogs are the greatest thing in the world, but other than her, we don't like that moniker. We don't want to be called dogs or worms or worse. But there's truth in it. It's as realistic an assessment of who we are as ever there was. It reveals the truth that we have no merit to make us attractive to God. Nothing that should make us worthy or valuable to Him. Sin, sin has rotted us out. It has made us worthless, rebels, enemies to the core. When the self-esteem movement swept through our culture a few decades back, evangelicals were criticized because their children scored so low in self-worth testing. Now, either two things happened there. One, those children only received half the story that they were sinners and worthless and hopeless, but didn't hear about God's rich love and mercy, shown in a Redeemer who loved them and died for them. Or two, that those evaluating them had no category for a people who considered themselves as worthless, but who knew that their value was not found in their skill or their appearance or their contribution, but only in their Lord's evaluation of them. when we come empty-handed like the Syrophoenician woman and acknowledge our desperate need of a Savior, the gifts of faith and humility show His work in our hearts. Verses 31 to the end. 
And then he returned from the region of Tyre, went through Sidon, to the Sea of Galilee, in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And one commentator says he uses sign language for this man, puts his fingers in his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue. And then he looked up to heaven. And he sighed and he said, Aphaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released. The original word literally says, the shackles of his tongue were released. And he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them, tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And the word proclaim is our word preach. Hear this. this. This is the important part. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now this story is included here as a doxology which means to give glory. It's a story of praise to conclude chapter 7. And with it, conclude a major part of Mark's narrative. Chapter 8 will begin a new cycle of events. But for now, our passage leaves us with these words, He has done all things well. And as it says, He has made the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. That's a feat that Isaiah 35 says the Messiah will do. It's a sign of the Messiah. Jesus has done all things well, which is just like the creation account, where God declares in Genesis 31 that he saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Jesus does what only God can do. Jesus does what only God can do. In this section of Mark, the first seven chapters, Jesus has calmed storms. He has created bread. He's cast demons and healed sick. He's restored the dead, spoken miracles. He's strode over land and sea. And these were not only signs of the coming Messiah, that he was the Messiah, but in every way only and totally possible for the divine. Jesus is God, and he has done all things well. Now, to the point I left dangling earlier, we read this passage and get stuck on the word dogs, don't we? And when we do, we miss the word for which we are supposed to get stuck on. And Mark makes sure that we know the Pharisees have missed it. He tells us to this point, his disciples have missed it too. But the woman caught it. She saw what it was all about. The word is bread. And above all 
the metaphors of food that we have encountered in Mark, Jesus offers bread, food, nourishment, sustenance. Bread crumbs and bread loaves along with fishes. He gives and he speaks of physical food, but all of this points to spiritual need, spiritual bread, spiritual food necessary to nourish the soul. If we go to the Gospel of John, after the feeding of the 5,000, after Jesus has walked on water, it says that Jesus offends his listeners way beyond what we have seen here with today's story about the woman. John 6, 41 and following. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day, as it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And this offended them, eating his flesh. The Jews disputed then amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in me. And a Jew wouldn't drink blood, not of anything. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread our fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. We're to allow the scandal to stand. We deserve nothing. Nothing. And yet God sent his one and only son to die a sinner's death in order to rescue for himself a nation. And this is for his glory and through his goodness. 
Now we are about to share a meal. We are about to eat the communion feast together. And this feast points to Jesus' blood given, body given, and bloodshed. All of this shows our great need. All of this shows his great goodness. I'm going to ask the servers to come up and the worship team. Now we share an open table, which means if Jesus is your Savior, if you have acknowledged your great need before him, you can join us and partake. Or if you want to accept the Lord as your Savior, you may join us too. There is wine on the inside ring and juice on the outside ring if you shouldn't have wine for some reason. And we'll get you to hold on to the elements until we can eat them all together. Christ I will encounter 
In our eagerness to identify the elements of this meal, bread and wine representing the body and blood of Christ, sometimes we forget the the total analogy, which is a meal with God. And this was, for the people of Jesus' day, uh, something of of the final day, something of, of heaven, something of the afterlife, which is that those who belong to God would feast with him. And it is a meal uh, that we don't belong at. It's a meal that we have no right to attend. And so the elements of bread and wine, representing the body and blood of Christ, are the elements which show us our entrance into the meal. How can we be here where we do not belong? How can we have a communion meal with the Father? How can we attend the Lord's table? It is because of the body and because of the blood. And so as we take communion and and ongoing, remember that you don't belong here. This is not your meal by right. This is not where we can sit. In fact, Peter writes 
of us in uh, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. He tells the good news first, so I'm going to read 10 first and then tell us the good news. He says in verse 10, once you were not a people, no, this is still the good news, just a sec, verse 9 and 10, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As Gentiles, we were not those who had the covenants. We did not have the right ancestors. We are welcomed into the family of God, adopted and given entrance to this meal through Christ alone. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this bread that we have broken and shared among ourselves as a symbol of your community, your body. And Lord, we thank you for this cup, this wine, this cup of celebration with with which we celebrate our freedom from slavery. And God, even after this ritual meal representing our union with you and with each other. We thank you for uh, the literal meal to follow. We bless it. We thank you for it. And we ask that you would be with us in your spirit as we fellowship to cause us to encourage one another, not just to talk about the weather and politics, but to encourage one another to greater love and good works. We ask you to do this for your glory. Amen.